You're listening to The Over 50 Entrepreneur, the podcast that's dedicated to the business builders who are only getting started when most are winding down. This is the place to discover how to create more freedom from your business while growing the value of your business. Now here's your host, Rick Hadrava. Hey everybody, this is Rick Hadrava and you're listening to another episode of the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. You know, as always, I'm just honored to have you listening. Uh, and I think what you'll find is you're going to get a lot out of our conversation today with our guest, James Roberts. You know, often when I think about entrepreneurs, um, and I think many people do this, we tend to visualize technology and disruption or social media and everything that gets the glory today. It could be fintech or healthcare or disruption in education. But the truth is many, many entrepreneurs in this country have have jobs or own businesses in industries that are less than glamorous, and yet they make a ton of money. They have a great time. They're driven and passionate about what they do, and they're constantly finding ways to solve problems, do things better, and just like any entrepreneur, they have their ups and downs. And so I'm really, really looking forward to my conversation with our guest today as he shares his entrepreneurial story. So welcome to the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast, James Roberts. James, thanks so much for taking time to be here today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Well, James, you know, we're going to talk about your roofing company right now, roofing, and a little bit about your vacation lodge rental business. I think those are both entertaining and interesting. Um, But I always like to start by giving a little background to our audience. You know, how did you start in business? How did you start in the roofing business? And, you know, just a little bit of your, your entrepreneurial start, if you'd be willing to share that with us. Sure. In the mid nineties, I, I started selling roofing uh, installs for another company and I worked for them for a while. And then I moved on to a different company and, and that company didn't treat me fairly, which sometimes in the construction business happens and went to another company, same thing, didn't treat me fairly and owed me some commissions and didn't pay it. And so I tried a fourth company and uh, they were pretty good, but at, in the end I sold a really giant job and they held back some commission. And so a, a large hailstorm happened in 2003 in Dallas where I lived at that point, I thought well, it's best to just branch out and try it on my own. And that way, I'll not only will I get the commission that I'm supposed to get, but I'll be able to provide a place for other people to work and, and they'll be protected from that kind of predatory uh, industry that happens sometimes. And so I did that and uh, we launched a business in 2003. And it took off right away and we did really well and we just continued on. So today, we're still in the roofing business. And now was that business right out of the gate? Was that right now roofing or what did that look like early on? It was not. It was uh, Robert's Roofing and Construction at the time. We did we put our name on it and uh, launched it that way. And then in, in Dallas, uh, that first year after the hailstorm, we, we sold about 500 roof installs uh, with uh, like four salesmen and myself. It was pretty good. Uh, and then when I started teaching myself to go out of town and open up offices in new territories. So I went to Denver and partnered with an existing roofer that was there. Then we roofed under his company name. And then I did the same thing. I went to Pensacola uh, during the Hurricane Ivan. It happened in late 2004. And uh, opened an office there, partnering with a local entity that couldn't handle all the business they had because the entire city needed re-roofed. And so um, I did that business model for a while. And then eventually, uh, after realizing that having 
various partners in local areas wasn't the best business model because the partners were, again, construction industry. I'm always having issues with having good partners. Uh, I decided to just open a national brand. So we took Robert's Shipping Construction nationally and started opening offices around the country. And then just leaving the place, you know, if there was a hailstorm or hurricane, we'd move in, open up an office, service the new influx of business. That would get us up and get us going in that region, get our name out there. And then as long as it would stay profitable, we just leave the office open and running. Eventually, we had eight offices going simultaneously around the country. Well, James, let me let me ask you. So it sounded sounds to me like early on, your business model was, I'm going to go where the storms are, and I'm going to be a subcontractor for either another roofing company that's got a presence in that market or a construction company. Is that correct? Not really. What we did is we paid them to use their business presence. I mean, uh, I owned a company um, that was modeled after their company and we would become partners. And so I wasn't necessarily some contractor for them because I'm the one contracting all the jobs and I'm also fulfilling the contracts and then I'm paying them for their uh, business presence. We would just model our company right after theirs. And then we had some interlinked partnership in the way that we did it, you know, so that everything I did, they got paid for. And when there's a hurricane or a hailstorm and it's really big, the local roofing contractors have no way to service that volume of customers. People will be waiting two or three years to get their roof on and customers won't do that. So they need, you know, professional out-of-town companies that can come in and do a large volume of work. It's, it's essential to get people's homes rebuilt. And so we would partner with a local guy that has a good reputation. And then when we leave, if we leave, but when we leave, he's got 1,500, 2,000 new happy customers. So that's really good for him. Plus he got paid for everything along the way. And then the customer got service because they got the new roof that they needed and they're not having to wait two or three years to get it done. That's interesting because it, it's an opportunity for you to grow your business. But reality is that local business owner also gains market share through that partnership. I, that's what it sounds like to me anyway. It is. He gains partner share and notoriety and, and that kind of thing. Um, it, it's, it's good for both people as long as both people are operating ethically you know, above board. Mm-hmm. And that, and that, as we know, that can be touch and go sometimes. Well, the other model, so then you adapted this model and, and I just want to make sure there's a clear um, comparison and contrast to the two models. Then what it sounds like you would then go into the market, you said, and set up shop where there had been a hurricane or some, some storm. How did you, I, I guess the question comes to my mind is where did you find the workers to then do the work that you needed if if you were starting out and, and getting that share of market uh, yourself? I'd bring them with me. Okay. So you didn't go out there and just look for local uh, subcontractors. You actually had a team that would go out where the where the need was and then and just go out and do the business. Right. I, most of the most of the workers that I use in those um, scenarios, we would bring them with us. And so for instance, like when I was running eight, eight different offices, I had about 35 to 45, you know, salesmen, um, project managers, and I would move them around office to office, depending on which office had a hailstorm, you know, and so like I, a slow office would only have one or two salesmen, project managers year round. And then I would move the bulk of them into an area where there was, you know, a catastrophic loss. And then and we try and get it all roofed up, you know, gobble up all the business because it it's kind of a race. And then um, you know we can just move around like that. And, and same and, with our installers too. You know we 
we had a, a group of trusted installers, you know, that would do the actual work, you know, and we would move them around with us as well. Sure. Well, so let's go back and, and look at it from, from the origins. So you, you had made mention that you worked for a few of these companies doing roofing. They always seem to slight you a little bit. Um, I know you and I've talked in the past and you said sometimes they just weren't ethical and that kind of got you kind of sparked or ignited that desire to go do it your own way. Um, what did it look like when you when you moved from working for somebody to now being the boss? What was that like early on? I got a big wake up call that there's different types of job knowledge that you need to be an entrepreneur. Like for instance, I, you know, I knew how to install a roof, I knew how to sell a roof, and I understand the business of you know contracting a roof and installing a roof. What I didn't understand was the completely different job description of owning a company where you have employees, you have subcontractors, you know, you have taxes, you have office staff, you know, weekly payroll, all these other things that have nothing to do with contracting a roof or installing a roof. And it's a completely different skill set. And I had to OGT that rapidly. Yeah, you're, you're not exactly being the technical person anymore with that, with that skill set. You are now playing a whole different ball game with many hats um, as we can see, if you had to go back and do it again, you know, you've today you've got a successful roofing company called Right Now Roofing. But as you think back on, you know, the origins of starting your own company and all the different ways that you you worked through that to find the right model for you, is there something that you would do different out of the gate if you had to go back and do it again? So out of the gate, um, we did really well out of the gate. I don't think I made many mistakes in 2003 that were just crushing. We came out of the gate, four and five sales, when we did 500 installs. That was really good. What I wasn't prepared for in Dallas was um, as soon as that hailstorm was over, there was almost nothing to do. And we were all sitting around like just looking at each other like there's nobody to roof. And, you know, one third of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex has all been re-roofed. And, we didn't know what to do, and uh, I would have tried to research a little bit more what to do in the dry spell or the downtime, and uh, I would have done a lot more research on how to do out-of-town storms for sure, because when I went to do my first out-of-town storm, I made a ton of mistakes. That was a, a big, a big, giant lesson in roofing, so that was- And, and was that-, that, was that- James, was that because um, you were you were going into those local markets and partnering with those people, or what was it that made that so challenging for you early on? So the first time I did it, I was really unsure of myself. I was a little timid. I know I'd only owned a roofing company for less than a year, and or maybe just about a year at that point, and I didn't know how to sit down with a local roofing company owner and negotiate a, a fair and equitable deal. And so I ended up just partnering with a guy and working out of his office. And we basically just joined our companies, but he kept the bank accounts, he kept all the money, he did everything and I fully trusted him and that was a bad mistake. Um, that guy ended up taking all of the money and all the profits out of that storm. He didn't ever pay me a dollar. Um, and I think he, I probably lost about $200,000. So, wow. Wow. Uh, unfortunate but valuable lesson. I gotta, I gotta imagine. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, let's but, let go ahead, James. Oh, I was gonna say. So I, I learned 
rapidly right there. And then I went to Pensacola. Um, coincidentally, where I'm at today, it's kind of deja vu um, while we're doing this interview because of the hurricane in Pensacola. But in 2004, I went to Hurricane Ivan in Pensacola and um, did the same thing, partnered with a local guy, but I structured it completely different. I made a completely different deal. Um, I did it in a way to protect myself. And that worked out really well for me. And, and that office blew up and we did. It was the best storm I think we've ever had in the history of doing everything. So. Well, you, you have made mention that you actually did something um, and you and I talked off air and just getting to know each other. And, and you had talked a little bit about something I thought was innovating in that you actually went from just being a roofing company to you actually were kind of a, um, a a, pr- a product company, if you will, uh, for lack of a better word. I can't think of the terminology I would use. Roofing supply company, yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. A roofing supply company. Talk about that. Like, like what was it that, that uh, brought that opportunity to you, and what did you learn from it? So a, a brief history. I basically encountered a problem. So in the Pensacola storm in 2004, Hurricane Ivan, I went and I opened up an office there, um, brought in some sales guys, um, and the entire city needed re-roofed. And at that point, there had already been three other hurricanes in Florida. And the shingle supply uh, distribution network was very strained. And they put all of the suppliers on allocation, which means if the local supply house, which supplies the shingles to all the roofing companies in the region or in the city, uh, if they call the factory and ask them for a semi-truck load of shingles, the factory might say, you're not going to get those shingles for a month where normally you could get them in two days. Uh, all of the shingle manufacturing plants had all been depleted of their back stock, and they were making them as fast as they could. And as fast as they were turning them out, they were landing at the supply company, and the supply company would have them out the door in a day, and they'd be gone. And so the, the effect of that is the roofing supply, excuse me, the roofing company like myself, if I call the supply company and say, I need 30 squares, which is a unit of measure of shingles, and how long till I can get those delivered to my job, or can I come pick them up? And they would tell me 30 to 45 days. So when I have 500 customers that need roof installs, and we ended up doing 1,500 customers in this storm, um, trying to wait 30 to 45 days just to get shingles, or sometimes even longer, they would say six to eight weeks, it makes your business model completely unworkable. You can't function. And so uh, when I hit that roadblock and I realized that I can't get shingles and here in any kind of timely manner, I just decided I needed to open my own roofing supply company which is what I did. And I started calling roofing suppliers that I had a relationship with or that I knew, or I would get them to introduce them to other people that I didn't know that were in other regions across the United States. And I would buy truckloads of shingles, sometimes as far away as California from Florida. And then I would truck them into the region and then uh, became my own supplier. And then I would sell them back to my other company, you know, with a tiny little markup to offset all the shrinkage in the yard and, the, you know, transportation costs. And then uh, the net result of that was my roofing supply company that I opened right next to my roofing company was getting more shingles in the yard than the other two roofing supply companies that were on either end of the block that were supplying the rest of the city. And most of the time, my yard was fuller than their two yards combined. Well, okay. So if, I, if I've got this right, but you just primarily funded your business, you didn't sell the supplies to other roofers? I did sometimes, but um, depending on what, there were certain shingles that I would just keep in stock that I would just constantly be buying and buying and buying. And as long as it wasn't a special order or something like that, 
then I might sell some to the other roofers. And I did had to do the exact same thing in Katrina when I opened in Hurricane Katrina um, a year later. And so I would roofing supply company and a roofing company at the same time. And in Katrina, I was selling uh, products to other roofers as well. Some people are selling entire truckloads, like semi truckloads of products to other roofing companies because they were stuck and they couldn't get anything. I love that because it's such a great example of the entrepreneurial spirit is, you know, we know we come up against all sorts of obstacles all the time. Um, and you just showed an opportunity to, to come up with a solution that worked for you. And I, and I love that. Um, so I applaud you, James, you have also talked about the fact that the roofing business as, as a business is very cyclical and you like to pursue other businesses it kind of reminds me of an adage that I used to say a long time ago. You know, if I, if I'm selling ice cream for a living, I'm probably, I'm probably going to benefit from selling some umbrellas periodically, right. And things that that cycle differently. And you kind of look at business that way in the conversations that we've had, you're always looking for additional income streams. How did you kind of go down that road and what's that resulted in for you? So I have um, one of the things I did to just kind of out of order timeline wise though, is I, we built a vacation lodge and we ended up building a little bigger than we thought uh, initially. It was kind of a, while you're at it, Oh, let's add this and said that, Oh, let's do this. And we ended up building a, a large lodge with our own private lake. And then uh, we realized that we could rent it on VRBO, kind of like an Airbnb. And uh, that's provided an additional income stream for us. You round it went pretty good. That took off really fast as soon as we started renting it. Uh, it's, I think, the largest lodge or cabin you can rent in Oklahoma. It's just 32 people in bed. It has a private lake, and it's become wildly popular. And it's just an additional cut. I don't know if you call it a side hustle because it's a pretty easy business to do, you know, but it does provide an additional income stream. And another thing I did, well, I'll go ahead. You can go. No, I, well, I was just going to say on that, but if I, if I remember right, you, you didn't necessarily set out to have the lodge be something that you would rent. It was originally um, a retreat for you and the family, correct? That's right. I was working so hard in the hurricanes and the storms and I think 12 hours, 16 hour days sometimes um, that I wanted to have a vacation spot that I could go just relax at. And during one of those hurricanes, I went to a lodge similar to the one I ended up building, and I had such a good time at it for three days because I needed a vacation because I overworked myself. <laughs> I was so fascinated by what this guy had built that I thought, I just have to have one of these. And so as soon as I had the money in the bank and a little bit of free time, I started looking for land. And in my nine months of land looking, and I found, a, you know, we have 540 acres now with a private lake, and I saw this is the spot. And then I built everything there, ran in the power. Ran and you know built a well. I designed the lodge. Hired a guy to put it together. But but again, it's your openness to the opportunity that that turned that into an income producing uh, business for you as well. And right. you know, I, I got on the website and checked it out, and I you know my wife's ready to go. It's beautiful. Um, you know that website, by the way, we'll we'll do a shameless plug here, James. It's robertsretreat.com. Uh, I would tell anybody listening, take a look at it. It's beautiful. Uh, and it, and it really looks like a reasonably priced, uh, opportunity to go out there. Well, you also talked about, you know, um, you did some business in Mongolia and yeah. I, I feel like I, I have to ask, we got to dig into that a little bit. How in the world did you get started with, 
a business and was it a side hustle or was it an actual business that you had in Mongolia? It was an actual business. So I'm going to just step back like uh, two years prior to that. So I'm renting my lodge and uh, we had a TV show come to the lodge. It's an outdoor hunting TV show and they rented it. And while I was there, I became friends with the owner who happened to own a roofing company in Florida. And the next thing you know, uh, I've invested in the TV show and now I'm part owner of this TV show for like three years. And at the time I took over the TV show, it wasn't profitable. It was not doing very well. And I didn't necessarily take it over, but I was a partner. And then uh, I was with the show for almost three years and then got it to where it was in the, well in the black. It was making good money. It didn't need any more investment capital. And then I sold my share out to a baseball player from New York. And then so I had a brief stint in that. But during those times, I met a guy who was wanting to buy advertising time on our TV show. And he was planning on going to Mongolia and opening a business doing commodities trading. And he essentially didn't have the backbone to take that kind of risk, go to a third world country and start a business. He'd never done anything like that before. And I kind of had experience going into new environments, starting businesses from going into different states and opening roofing companies. And every state's different. There's lots of rules and regulations and licenses and insurance requirements and lots of things that red tape you have to go through depending on the state. Um, and so I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll give this a try with this guy. I prayed about it and felt like I should go. And uh, in 2011, I, I flew into Mongolia in the middle of winter. It was like negative 35 and started a business. Wow. What was that experience like? I mean, just going somewhere you'd never been before and, and starting business. Um, did you ever just question yourself? Like what in the world have I done? About every day. Uh, the first five weeks was really hard. And there were other times that were really hard. But being in a different culture, being away from my family, uh, Mongolia's harsh and cold environment. Uh, the red tape there was way different than the kind of red tape that I was used to in the United States. Um, I was doing business in three different languages, in English, a Mongolian, and Chinese. I'm trying to broker uh, commodities trading between the Mongolians and the Chinese. I opened up a I opened up a camp in the Gobi Desert in the middle of nowhere. We opened up a gear camp, which gear is another word for house. Um, and we bought semi trucks and had those housed in the, in the Gobi Desert. And we were hauling coal from the north part of the Gobi Desert across the Gobi Desert down to the border of China and Mongolia and, and selling the coal to the Chinese at the border. Uh, it was a steep, steep, steep learning curve with lots of up and downs. And so, and I was, ended up living over there for three years. Okay, I was going to ask you, like, how long were you over there? Um, did you take the family with you, or was it just you and and you travel back and forth from the states? So it was me traveling back and forth. In the end, um, my last time over there, I took the family for like three months, and we had Thanksgiving and Christmas in Mongolia, and then we came back in the in, in January and New Year's too. So the, the kids have a lot of good memories of that being in. When we spent Christmas in a in a gear, which is like a tent house, you know, out in the Mongolian wild and it was like negative 25 at night, negative 30 at night. And so the kids got to ride a reindeer and it was just a, a completely different experience for children having a Christmas in America. Well, it's gotta be great experience for them. And, and, you know, you get them outside their comfort zone a little bit, you know, sure, and they got to see how impoverished the third world country is because Mongolia is, you know, they have some very rich people, but for the most part, the average Mongolian citizens, it's pretty rough life, and, you know, sure. difficult. Well, well, James, let me ask you this. So you've owned several businesses um, in addition to the roofing business. You know, how did you know when it was time to 
transition or exit out of any of these businesses? So the, Mongolia is pretty easy. Uh, it, I actually, while I was there in Mongolia, I noticed that all these trucks were, um, I'm kind of answering your question in a very circular map. All the trucks that were hauling coal across the Gobi Desert, uh, it's a very rough environment. And they've got, you know, 50 to 100 tons of coal in the back of their truck. I mean, they're overloading these trucks like crazy. And each one of these trucks, they're Chinese trucks, and they have 22 tires. And these tires are blowing out like crazy. Uh, I, and I thought, you know what? If I could sell tires to all these, there's giant caravans, semi-trucks, just huge, long lines, as far as the eye can see, backed up. And thousands and thousands of tires are getting blown out. So I thought, if I can sell these guys tires, and can make a side business while I'm working on this coal thing. So I opened a tire company, and I was importing tires from a Chinese manufacturer into Mongolia, and then selling them in the Gobi Desert to the, to the people that were competing with me, hauling coal. So I was making money on tire sales uh, against with my competition. And, and then uh, I also opened a real estate evaluation company because it was booming. And so I had that. I had three different companies going at the same time in Mongolia. I had a partner who was a Cambridge graduate, and he was doing real estate evaluation in Mongolia, but he didn't have a company structure, and he needed somebody to set up a company, and he had a bank accounts in accounting for him. So I did that. Um, that was kind of fun. So I just had all these things going on at the same time. And then I signed a huge uh, $150 million plus contract in China to, uh, to sell coal. It was $150 million a year, and then it was going to increase. It could double or even triple from there. So I was pretty happy with those results. And then two weeks later, the Chinese government artificially deflated the coal market. They closed the border and stopped you know, importing coal. They just shut it down. And it was ships in the Chinese harbor full of coal that they wouldn't offload. We couldn't send them any coal to the border, and they dropped the price of coal by a significant amount, and the coal commodity just fell to the floor, and it still hasn't recovered to this day, and the Chinese did that to just push the price down. Well, when they did that, it negated my contract, and then I couldn't do any business, and we just closed it down and went home. That was the end. That was a pretty good sign that, hey, this isn't going to work like we thought. So, so some... Sometimes it's just the situation that kind of brings in a business to its end. Um, sure. And, and hey, we all, you know, that's a circumstance you can't really control. But what what's fascinating to me is you really are the consummate entrepreneur, always looking for a way to um, fill a need. I mean, that that's what you're you're attuned to looking at where there's a need. And is that something that you've always had or how did you develop that that eye for seeing the opportunity? Maybe something I've always had. I see opportunities a lot of times, like when I'm just looking around, like, oh, this will make a good business. But I've kind of learned there's, this will make a good business and that would be great, but is it going to be financially worth my time and effort? And is there a way I can get it going and train people that it can kind of run autonomously without much work for me? Or is this just a good idea, but it would never really be functional in the long run? Or is this a good idea, but somebody could come and do it much better than me really quickly and like overrun me and all my effort wouldn't work out. So I've, I've learned a lot of different, being in the highly competitive roofing market, it's given me a, a good eye for, at least I think so, um, looking at businesses critically to see if this is going to work for me. And if so, you know, a lot of times it's a race. How fast can I get into doing this? You know, the tire thing was a race too. Yeah. Um, because the, there was a shortage in tires and I wanted to fill it as fast as I could before someone else got an idea and started doing it better than me. So. Sure. Well, worked out for you. And what, what I heard you say right there is you've developed kind of a filtering system because entrepreneurs, 
usually have a ton of ideas and they see opportunity. Um, but, but you a have to know how to filter and then B once you've gotten to that filter, if you still are there with the idea, you like it, you have to execute, you have to go figure out how to make it happen. And it sounds like you've done that, James, you know, there's so much here, uh, that we could talk about, but unfortunately we're coming towards the end of our time. I always like to ask, you know, if there, there was a piece of advice that you would have, and, you know, we've got entrepreneurs that we deal with, um, that are just starting out. We have those that are, you know, they actually are contemplating maybe transitioning out of their business, either selling or, you know, giving it to the family members or whatever. And then we have everybody in between. But if, but if you were to think back on your journey, what, what advice would you share with our audience? Um, that's something that just kind of has stuck with you through the years. Um, first thing I'd say is get a good team and figure out what you're good at and do what you're do the parts that you're good at really well. And then stuff that you're not good at, figure out a way to hire someone else to do it. You know, like have a good attorney, have a good accountant, you know, have somebody keep good books for you. You know, don't waste your time doing any of that. Uh, if you can, if you can sub something out or hire somebody to do something, just stick with what you're really good at. The second thing I would do is tell people is read a lot of books on how to run a business. It's not the same thing. Owning a business is not the same thing as doing the technician skill, you know, or installing a roof. You know, there's a lot of learning curves in owning a business. A lot of mistakes can be done. And then thirdly, figure out a really good budget to keep your cash flow. Cash flow obviously is a simple thing, but, you know, there's so many times my cash flow got tentative on me and I would barely squeak through by the grace of the Lord, you know, just squeak in and making payroll barely on a Friday. You know, and it caused me a lot of unnecessary anxiety. And had I been more concerned about my cash flow a little better, I think that would have helped me a lot. You said, there's a lot to being an entrepreneur and being successful at it. And a lot of it, you just have to get like swimming. How do you tell someone how to swim in one couple of sentences or piece of advice? You just got to get in the water and paddle around. Sometimes you just got to, yeah, you got to make sure that you have um, the ability to swim or you're going to pick it up pretty quick. Um, right, that's right. <laughs> well, it, so so there's one question um, that I wanted to ask you and, and then we'll we'll wrap things up here. But do you ever miss working for somebody else? No. Yeah. It's, it's that no, freedom as it. an entrepreneur. I never, yeah. I love the freedom. I don't miss it. I probably, I couldn't imagine doing it again. Uh, I haven't worked for someone else in like 25 years. And um, yeah, I, I can't even mentally conceive of going back to work for someone else. It's uh, the freedom of an entrepreneur, the risk of it all, the reward of it all. Uh, there's also a, another benefit of being able to provide jobs for people that need it. Giving people a good organization and a good culture for them to thrive and work in is really, really rewarding. You know, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come and thank me for the job they had or the opportunity they had that I provided for them. And they were heartfelt about it and they really appreciated it. Or the time as, a, as an employer, I was able to help somebody that worked for me that really needed help. You know, maybe they needed a loan or a draw or something. I could do it for them. They were thankful. They came back, paid me back. It's about all, you know, it's, it's a very rewarding lifestyle to own a business and be able to help other people. And, and that's why we want you to be successful, right? I mean, right. Success, successful business owners do so much in this world. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time to share with us kind of your journey. Um, James, so we know you've got Right Now Roofing. We know about robertsretreat.com. If somebody right. want if somebody wanted to learn more about you or your companies, 
Um, what's the best way for them to connect with you? So they can call right now roofing. Um, we're the only right now roofing in America. As far as I know, you can look us up. It's you know, www.rnroof.com online. Uh, just call and ask for me. Or they can look at the website for um, robertsretreat.com. Uh, you can rent it through VRBO and look us up that way too. It's vrbo.com forward slash five nine 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 seven one. Takes you right to the property. I'm pretty accessible. Good. Good. Well, listen, again, we appreciate having you. Um, we, we wish you well down in Florida. I know you're down there doing business and, and uh, we will have the show notes, which will include the link to James's websites, his businesses. If you want to learn more, guys, remember to go to epicsbiz.com forward slash podcast for the show notes to this podcast, other podcasts. And if you visit the website, epicsbiz.com, you can get other resources that are available for you as entrepreneurs. That's epicsbiz.com. And if you have a question, you know, if there's something that you want us to talk about on the podcast, shoot me an email, rick at epicsbiz.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love your feedback. We'd love your questions. And if we use your question on the air, we'll be sure to send you a nice little gift as a way to say thank you. So, be sure to go in and like the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss our future episodes as well. So until next time, I appreciate you listening. And remember, we're only getting started. The Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Epic Business Advisory, where we help entrepreneurs escape the owner's trap, build businesses that can succeed without you, allowing you the opportunity to realize more freedom, think bigger, and pursue next-level goals. Download our freedom formula at epicsbiz.com formula. And remember, we're only getting started.